Welcome, everyone. Thank you for joining us. My name is Matt Rajansky. I'm director of the Wilson Center's Kennan Institute. Uh, today's book discussion on how Ike led the principles behind Eisenhower's biggest decisions uh, by Susan Eisenhower. I'm proud to say my friend uh, and, uh, of course, Eisenhower's granddaughter. I'm sorry, the virtual background makes it a little harder to see the, the book. Uh, that's from Thomas Dunn Books. Um, we're co-sponsoring it today with a history and public policy program. Uh, thank you to my colleagues there. Uh, and it's just such a pleasure to be able to have not only Susan, but our own uh, global fellow, Walter Hudson uh, from the National Defense University uh, joining us as a discussant for this book. Um, before we start, let me just remind folks who are interested to sign up uh, on our website to listen to our podcasts, Ken and X and the Russia File, as well as our blogs, The Russia File and Focus Ukraine. Um, you can pose questions at any time, uh, and I think Susan's going to talk a little bit about the ground rules, which are almost, there are no rules, but I have a couple of rules. Uh, please include your name, please include your affiliation, uh, please submit the questions by email to Kenan, K-E-N-N-A-N, at wilsoncenter.org, uh, tweet them at Kenan Institute, or post them on our Facebook page, um, and I'm going to introduce both uh, Susan and Walt now, because I think Susan's going to speak uh, fairly quickly uh, by way of introduction, and then Walt's going to launch into a conversation, uh, and uh, I'm going to reserve the right to jump in at pretty much any point, uh, including with your questions. So please keep them coming uh, right from the very beginning. Let me start uh, with Susan, uh, who is well known for her work uh, in many fields, particularly as a policy analyst focusing on national security and strategic issues. Uh, she's authored hundreds of op-eds uh, for newspapers such as the Washington Post, the New York Times, and the Los Angeles Times. Her articles have appeared in the National Academy of Sciences, Issues in Science and Technology, and the Naval Institute's Proceedings. Uh, she's the founder of the Eisenhower Group, a Washington, D.C.-based consulting company that provides strategic counsel on business development, public affairs, and communications projects, and is chairman emeritus of the Eisenhower Institute. She currently holds a year-long seminar on strategy for competitively selected students through the Eisenhower Institute, which is at Gettysburg College. Um, and she's currently a member of MIT's Energy Initiative Advisory Board and serves on a number of other charitable and corporate boards as well. In addition to this book, How I Led, Susan has authored or co-authored three more trade press books and has edited, co-edited, and written introductions and chapters for many books on international security issues. Uh, Walt Hudson is both a lawyer and a PhD uh, and a Wilson Center Global Fellow. He serves as associate professor at the Eisenhower School of National Security and Resource, Resource Strategy uh, at the National Defense University, where he teaches courses in strategy, strategic leadership, geoeconomic policy, and other topics. Uh, in 2019, Walt was with us as a Title VIII short-term scholar here at the Kennan Institute, and that's how we got to know each other. He's a retired Army colonel. We won't hold that against him. Uh, and <laughs> Army diplomacy, that's a thing. 2015, uh, which focuses on post-World War II occupation policy. He's written widely in various journals, such as the American Interest, Joint Forces Quarterly, Military Review, Military Law Review, and PRISM. So again, just a reminder, you can submit your questions at any time, so go ahead and start doing that now. Uh, Susan, the floor is yours. Thanks so much. Well, thank you, Matt. I want to uh, thank you very much for this opportunity to um, discuss how I led and, and um, uh, Walt, it's great to see you again. Um, this is a real pleasure. Um, I'm often asked why I wrote this book and why I wrote it now. Uh, it's a good question because I was planning on actually um, 
engaging in a project related to uh, foreign policy after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, but I was convinced by um, one of my pals to uh, write this book now because first of all, we had the 75th anniversary of the end of World War II this last summer. And then in September, the Eisenhower Memorial uh, was dedicated on the mall. Um, I would also say that I couldn't help myself because we had a, a major national uh, election underway, the presidential election of 2020, which will be one for the history books. Uh, it seemed to me that um, Dwight Eisenhower still after all this time had something to say to us. So maybe that will come up in our uh, discussion today. Now, uh, I guess um, in terms of how people might think about uh, asking me questions, uh, please don't be deterred by the fact that I am um, one of Dwight Eisenhower's four grandchildren. Uh, we, uh, as kids, we were raised to completely compartmentalize our relationship with uh, Dwight Eisenhower from his role as a uh, public figure. Um, and so uh, I've heard just about every question that's uh, ever been asked and, and uh, don't mind a bit um, uh, taking anything that's on your mind. Uh, one of the reasons I thought that this um, book might be a little bit different though, is that in reading um, the, the, the history, the scholarship, uh, the personal accounts, um, the words of his former associates, uh, I thought that there was room for maybe handling a book on Dwight Eisenhower more thematically. One of the problems um, in, in, in the scholarship of a figure this large, because this is a long career, um, is that uh, presidential historians are oriented towards his presidency, um, uh, military historians are oriented towards his role in World War II, and sometimes they don't come together. Uh, and I think the point I really wanted to make in my book is that Eisenhower the general and Eisenhower the president uh, was one the same person. Um, as a matter of fact, he brought a lot of the way he thought about military matters to the way he looked at political matters and probably viewed a political landscape much like a, a battlefield in a way, um, using many of the same uh, concepts that um, uh, appeared uh, in his, experience, his earlier experience. Anyway, that was, that was my hope. Then uh, the other thing is, is that in reading this scholarship, I had an opportunity to um, see a lot of questions that scholars had about who he was as a person. Uh, and I think sometimes I was able to um, offer some insight uh, based on um, actually knowing him very well um, and being extremely close to my father, who was his only surviving son and a man who was a military historian himself and lived until the age of 92. So I felt like I had um, maybe a slightly different take than some have had on his life and times. So maybe I should just end there and I'm really looking forward to this discussion. Thanks again, uh, Matt, uh, the Wilson Center for this opportunity. Thanks so much, Susan. That's that's just perfect. Walt, why don't you start the conversation and we'll go from there. Yeah. Hey, thank you. And uh, thank you, Susan. Um, your book, as you point out, it, it's very wide ranging and, and it, it is thematic. And so I, I'd like to start out uh, to give us a little context about Ike, uh, your grandfather as a man. What, what's really striking and brought out in your book about your grandfather, in contrast, for example, to MacArthur or Marshall, they were both first captains at West Point and VMI, respectively, is it? I didn't seem destined for military renown. 
you know, uh, in fact, as you were calling the book, the reason he went to West Point was to get a free education. And he had, his family had pacifist roots. So why do you think he chose to make a career in the army, to stay in the army uh, and, and make a career of it? What, what do you think motivated him? Well, first of all, you're absolutely correct about the, the free education. Uh, after graduating from Abilene High School, um, Ike stayed behind to uh, help put his older brother through college. And so he uh, gets the idea, uh, looking down the row, he's one of um, uh, six surviving boys, if you can imagine. And, and, but, you know, there was a gap between himself and his younger brother. And I think he worried about not getting family help and going to college. So he started looking at other alternatives. I hate to tell the Naval Academy this, but yes, he applied to the Naval Academy first. Um, was turned down because he was too old and and so uh, and then got into West Point because uh, the person in front of him had uh, failed to meet all the requirements. Uh, and so this is uh, kind of a happenstance. But I will say that as a kid, he absolutely loved history. He loved it so much uh, and, and read so much of it independently uh, that his mother had to lock up the books in a, in a cup, cupboard because he wasn't, you know, he was late for his chores. Uh, the other thing, which I think is even more important, and I think West Point is ends up merging with Ike's um, background um, significantly, not the pacifist part, of course, but the other part of his background is that uh, coming from a deeply religious family, he was taught that he was only a servant of something larger than himself. And he goes to the military academy and he understands what that larger thing is. He's going to be serving his country, uh, just as he was uh, encouraged to do as a young kid, is to find that thing that's bigger than yourself and to serve it. So, um, you know, I think he got there and, and um, you know, felt at home, even if he was a little bit of a rebellious cadet who, being older, thought a lot of the stuff that went on there was silly. <laughs> Yeah, I, I can I can understand. Um, so you know, it was um, he was part of a generation of of army officers that I, I I guess could be categorized as somewhat apolitical. Um, he didn't even vote, and I I think I recall um, for many officers it, it was actually against the law in some states to vote if you were if you were in the military. And so I, I think there was actually speculation in the late '40s whether he was a Republican or a Democrat. So why do you think he chose to run as a Republican? Well, first of all, I've got to say that we are so fortunate that Eisenhower was a great diary keeper. Um, and so we know about this six year struggle where first the uh, Republicans come calling, then the Democrats come calling. And it goes back and forth like this over the course of six years, depending on which party felt they you know, needed some help in, getting, um, in uh, winning the presidency. Um, and I, um, I think that uh, the scholarship that says he was just flirting with everybody and really wanted to be president really don't understand him at all. I think um, he uh, had grave doubts about whether or not a military man uh, ought to be um, running for such a position. But I'll tell you what happens as we get into 1952. Um, and he is uh, faced with a very, very uh, big decision. He is the first commander of NATO forces. Uh, by this time, he has had uh, people come calling, as I say, for a very lengthy time. But some things happen within the Republican Party after Tom Dewey's defeat. 
uh, for the presidency. The Republicans are by this point desperate, but look at who's running the Republican party, a group of isolationists. And uh, Eisenhower was very, very worried about this very, very strong, um, strong divisions within the Republican party itself. Then also think the Democrats have been out of, uh, had been in power uh, for 20 years. And um, I thought that this, uh, that the country needed a vibrant two party system. And then finally, um, the big uh, ramp up, uh, a new war in Korea. And, and uh, Ike really thought that, um, uh, you know, the confluence of this uh, federal spending, um, a war that probably couldn't be won, combined with a uh, isolationist wing in the Republican party. And he decided to take off his five stars, resign his commission and run for president of the United States. Yeah, I mean, I think people sometimes forget that it was pretty tumultuous. The, the 1950s were not uh, as uh, placid and Ozzie and Harriet as people sometimes make them out <laughs> to be. Um, so we move on to the presidency. So, of course, your grandfather's elected landslide, 52. He takes office in 53. And there's a lot going on, as you said, Susan. There's the Korean War still raging. Then all of a sudden, Stalin dies sort of unexpectedly, a few months after your grandfather takes office. Uh, there's all sorts of uncertainty about what, where the US should go. So he, he convenes this solarium task force, um, actually in the basement of the National War College, where we're <laughs> close to where I work, <laughs> um, which was secret for years. Uh, in fact, there are parts of solarium, I've, I've researched it quite extensively. I've been out to your, your grandfather's library. There's still parts that are redacted. But can you just tell us, what was he thinking as far as trying to map a big strategic picture of the world? And, and why would he, can, what was this solarium all about? I mean, people have probably heard bits and pieces of it. Could you just describe it, what it was about and what he intended? Maybe we can explore that for a little bit. Okay, well, I, I have to apologize to all of those at West Point for saying that some of what he saw up at West Point was silly. What he meant by that, and this is relevant to what we're about to discuss, um, is, is that um, he was a guy who liked to question everything, including, by the way, his own assumptions. I mean, this is how he organized the White House, to have people giving him pushback all the time because he thought that all wisdom did not reside in the mind of one man, no matter how talented you were. Um, and so Solarium actually becomes a very, very important moment um, when Ike observes the deep divisions, not just in the Republican Party, um, but within society itself about different, differing views about America's place in the world. And in a lot of ways, it has such contemporary resonance because again, we, this country is divided right now around uh, not a dissimilar issue. Now with Stalin's death, of course, uh, this becomes uh, a bit of an emergency, I'd say, because suddenly all of the assumptions about um, America's response to the Soviet leadership um, is suddenly transformed with a power vacuum. Um, uh, famously, Eisenhower says, uh, bring me the Truman administration's contingency plans, and there weren't any. Now, you're talking about one of, um, you know, uh, one of Dwight Eisenhower's, uh, you might even say, uh, obsessive pastimes was contingency planning. Uh, and so uh, he devised the solarium. Uh, now, now, while you have uh, gone through these records um, very specifically, but I'm sure that you will back me up in noting 
uh, the, uh, the very finest experts in the country got together to discuss this, people of deeply divergent viewpoints. Uh, and they were put on three teams um, and invited to argue um, a range of uh, strategic approaches. Um, now this had, um, and we could get into the super details of this, but I think the most important thing to remember is that this accomplished at least a couple of things. First of all, it is a sign of respect and validation that he invited these three viewpoints to come argue it in front of him. In other words, it was a validation of differing views. It was legitimate to have a different view about what would be best for this country. So already the Solarian process is a sign of respect, okay? Then uh, of course, as you know, they studied uh, these issues for some months and uh, came to the White House in uh, July of 1953 with their um, assessments and they argued these in front of the president. What this also did was give those three groups uh, a chance to hear the president's reasoning and to understand that at the end of this process, uh, there was going to be a strategy for going forward, but everybody had had their day. Um, and I think this is the reason so much of Washington, why um, people hear about solarium, but don't really know what it is. And the reason they hear about it is that some circles in Washington still think that an idea like that is desperately important. Um, and that we um, probably, because of uh, a change of administration and many other new challenges, you know, could benefit from a process like that again. Yeah, you, you hear about every time I, I've studied it at a, a new administration, solarium comes up again. Let's do a solarium. And it's often talked about uh, hard to imitate. Do you, you think it could work today? Well, I think um, that's, that's really up to the people who convene it. Um, yeah. Anything can work if there's the political will, and the political will often has to come right square, bang from the top down, uh, because otherwise um, there's too everybody's got uh, too many opinions. And um, actually, um, sure, the 1950s were a really, really rough time. We had Joseph McCarthy. We had all kinds of uh, other deep divisions that played out. Uh, China had gone communist. There were all kinds of accusations made about people, but you know what? It's no walk in the park these days either. Um, and we think, oh, the country's deeply divided, like there's something um, normal or we can get through it. No, we really can't. Because let me just uh, wrap it up in this, uh, I don't mean wrap it up, but let me just add this one final thing. Let's get back to what Eisenhower's basic objectives were, his strategic objectives. It is the same strategic objective he had during World War II, which is what I called in, in my book, unity of purpose, okay? He believed that the deep divisions were, as he said, quote unquote, a welcome site for an alert enemy, all right? I think that the deep divisions today in our country in the disrespectful way we, uh, you know, uh, we treat each other um, and not everybody treats everybody that way, but it's become a national problem is a national security issue. Uh, we, we hand our um, adversaries a, a roadmap for continuing to divide this country because uh, we are showing the way and making very little effort, I think, to uh, pull ourselves together uh, in a way that recognizes that differing opinions uh, are vital for getting better answers. Yeah. yeah, and so, yeah, you described the three task forces. Of course, you had 
one task force was George Kennan's famously, <laughs> which was sort of the containment option. Right. Another one was a more aggressive rollback option. And another one was kind of a more of an amalgamation. And speaking of George Kennan, I mean, it's fascinating uh, to me as, a, as an admirer of both your grandfather and of, of Kennan. Um, there's, a, there's a part in your book and, and you talk about this. Um, at the end of Solarium, Ike stands up and he summarizes all these complex findings from these three task forces. And for something like 45 minutes, extemporaneously uh, summarize them in such a way that Kennan himself, who was no slouch, says he asserted his intellectual ascendancy over every man in the room, uh, which is no small praise coming from Kennan. But what's interesting during his presidency, I, I don't know if a lot of people saw that side of him. I mean, I, I think there was, a, there was a side that this was an amiable, avuncular figure. He was leading the country, but he was no high order intellectual. And sometimes Adlai Stevenson, who ran against him in 52 and 56, was seen as this sort of paragon of intellectualism. Why do you think people saw, why didn't people see him more as the thoughtful person, as I think scholarship has revealed? Well, you know, I think it's an, it's an excellent question. I think it all gets down to politics. Um, actually, uh, Eisenhower was untouchable until um, his, uh, I would say his second illness. Um, and uh, we were also coming into the midterm elections of 1958. And then of course the presidential election of 1960. And I, I really think that uh, the Democrats were running against Dwight Eisenhower in their own view. I don't, I don't think they needed to feel that way, but they did. Um, and so this whole, he's out on the golf course, he's having a great time, he's a bunk dealer, he's like your granddaddy. They weren't talking that way in his first term. They really weren't. Now, I think the other thing is that there's a certain mythology that comes uh, out of this. Who are the people who are writing the books that say he's a buncular and don't really understand why he, um, made certain decisions he did. So they assumed he didn't make any decision at all. Um, what you have there, I think, um, is a, a problem related to leadership style. Uh, Ike believed um, in having an array of tools in his strategist toolbox. One of them is keeping your mouth shut and waiting for a situation to play out. Um, another is making sure that you don't insult people publicly, because if you do that, you have a dedicated enemy, and then under no circumstances can you count on them for probably cooperation. Um, he believed um, in a middle way, so that requires actually uh, fairly well-developed uh, diplomatic skills among both Republicans uh, in dealing with Republicans and Democrats. And finally, this whole um, avuncular thing, um, you know, it took almost uh, till the 1980s for that to be debunked because uh, the archives were opened and Fred Greenstein, a Princeton um, uh, biographer and uh, uh, historian, you know, wrote the first book that really began to look at a leadership style that was more um, nuanced. Um, and then finally, let me just say one other thing, and this is where General Eisenhower comes in. Um, he didn't play out of a typical um, winner-takes-all playbook. Um, he was a military man. Um, and what I mean by that is that he always saw his role to um, uh, defend and advance the interests of the United States of America, not his own. That's the oath he took when he was at West Point. 
And so all of these things come together. We, we try and compare him to other politicians. He isn't really like any other politician except maybe uh, Washington or Grant um, to, to compare him with. And so all that taken together, I think, um, minimized um, a fairly sophisticated way of looking at strategy. And some of that uh, was he knew how to deploy it when it was time. And it was time at Solarium to deploy um, you know, his ego, his, um, his conclusions about what was a very, very serious issue facing the United States. Yeah, yeah, and you're, uh, thanks, Susan. Uh, uh, you've, you've mentioned uh, Fred Greenstein, the famous hidden hand presidency idea that mm -hmm. sort of sparked the, uh, a lot of the so-called Eisenhower revisionism that uh, came about in the 1980s. Uh, I remember reading that when I was in college and, and uh, it was like a whole new world uh, that we had been, we hadn't been told the full truth about this, this man, it, it seemed. Um, so let's just, we're gonna do a little, if I, if I can indulge me here, it's sort of, if Ike were here today. So, um, uh, and let me just term, we have, and some could debate about this, we're in an era of renewed great power competition or however you wanna call it. Um, perhaps China being sort of an exemplar of that. Um, he stressed so much in his presidency, the need to, for security and solvency, that it's not, you, you just can't have a strong defense. It has to be buttressed and reinforced by a sound economy. Um, given this challenge that we seem to have with China, especially now, do you think he'd have any particular advice on how to proceed against that competitor, if not adversary? Well, um, you know, there, there's so many new threats that uh, have emerged, for instance, uh, in the cyber, in the cyber area. And we have no rules of, of the game for cyber. Uh, we actually didn't have any real rules for the game for um, nuclear matters either until uh, Dwight Eisenhower came to the White House. Uh, the point was, is that I think he made about the Soviet Union, and I think this applies to both Russia and China today, is that, um, you know, we had two choices. It would either be relationship management or catastrophe. I mean, catastrophe is a very strong word and I don't like it because it as a word too much, but I don't know what the other word is. Um, maybe we'll call it unacceptable losses, okay? But relationship management or a really big downside that is so down that it uh, uh, could affect um, uh, the well-being of this country for some time to come. And we're back in a situation like that. So I can hear him right now talking about relationship management. And people who think that relationships don't have to be managed, um, you know, I think are being extremely naive because of the, um, the fact that every country on earth, um, you know, uh, has a right to its own self-interest and has um, and will, whether we like it or not, uh, respond uh, in a way um, to what we do either to our liking or not to our liking. So uh, all of this is way more complicated um, than it used to be because now we have both Russia and China that we're thinking about. Um, and I think he would also say uh, it would be highly advantageous not to have them make common cause. Um, but that's going to require thinking about things um, you know, in a slightly strategically different way. Um, and I think that nobody should be afraid of a debate um, about how to avoid uh, bringing um, two of our uh, competitors and adversaries together um, 
you know, against this country. Yeah, you mentioned uh, earlier, and I think in the book especially, that, that, that Ike operated at the strategic and not the operational level, that he did not, and, and for military folks that resonates, you know, you have strategic, mm -hmm. operational, and tactical levels, tactical being the, the lowest level, operational sort of this in-between level, strategic though being holistic and looking at everything. And of course he wanted to operate at that highest level and not the so-called operational level. And so for example, he personally chairs almost all the National Security Council meetings. He's trying to look for the big picture. C could you just expound upon that? What you mean as a, what's your take on him as a strategic rather than an operational leader and, and how that played out uh, both as a general and as a president? Well, I think that's a very um, relevant part. Not only uh, does a strategic leader have to look at the big picture, but I think uh, every bit is important. Um, a strategic leader has to connect the dots. Now, this is really important. Dot connecting, um, frankly, couldn't be more crucial. And this is why not everybody has maybe even the cognitive talent to uh, be a strategic leader. Um, obviously, he benefited greatly by being an operational leader uh, during the course of his career. Um, and he was also fortunate in the assignments he was given because many of them contained elements that would be crucial during World War II. And the outcome of World War II was crucial in the way he thought about his presidency, okay? But the thing is, is that connecting the dots is extremely um, important. And I think uh, he was concerned, well, I know he was concerned um, that it would be possible, especially during the presidency, to be dragged down by detail that is not at, at uh, the highest um, uh, level for the president. So he set up an organization um, to um, go through these issues and to do a lot of the preliminary work so that when it came to him, he would be making decisions at the right level. Um, and I, I think I'll just close on that note because we, uh, you know, we know many uh, examples of where presidents get dragged into you know, secondary issues and, and, it had, and contingencies haven't been developed and surprises occur and, and other things. And you know, it's not like his administration was perfect, but he understood the problem uh, and organized himself to try and avert um, the dangers of not having enough study and, and research behind some very complex issues, especially as they played out um, over the longer haul. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here, obviously, uh, with the, his, his strategic leadership. Um, and and uh, there were a lot of tumultuous events during his presidency. Of course, uh, ending the Korean War, uh, the, the Dien Bien Phu crisis in 1954, in which there's this big question about should we, should we or should we not intervene to save French forces in Vietnam? The Suez Crisis, which you really cover, I think, very well, that's 56 Suez Crisis. Then, of course, there's Sputnik in 1957, where the Soviets launch a satellite into space. So I, I'd like to look at this, this last one, uh, Sputnik, um, and the apparent mania and, and ferment that it, it created in this country. What was Ike's reaction to Sputnik, to the, the Russian so-called beating us into space, and uh, how did that all play out during that part of his presidency? Can you can talk about that for a little bit. 
Well, I will. I'd, I'd just like to um, say very quickly that he was surprised that everybody was so shocked because clearly they weren't reading the paper. I mean, just days before the launch of Sputnik, um, Soviet scientists are uh, meeting with their American counterparts to talk about um, their various roles during International Geophysical Year, which was the um, you know, the year that was being set aside by the scientific community to explore uh, outer space and, and um, you know, undisturbed areas like uh, Antarctica and other things. And so um, there was plenty of talk that uh, the United States and the Soviet Union would be launching artificial satellites in 1957. Um, but Americans made so many presumptions that, of course, we would go first. Actually, it was advantageous to us, believe it or not, from a strategic point of view, uh, that, the, that the Soviet Union went first. And, and the reason is very simple. They did not approve or agree to overflights of their territory um, when they were offered the chance uh, during the open skies um, period. Um, and so what would, uh, how could we imagine that they would agree to uh, satellite surveillance of their um, military um, developments um, from space. And we were worried that they were uh, going to love to launch one of these uh, things um, and be first, but they hadn't thought through the consequences of doing so. They helped us establish the concept of um, a freedom of space, free access to space, which had not been legally resolved. Um, and so again, that period is, is uh, misunderstood, I think, because you have to sort of burrow in a little bit more deeply Frankly, as an analyst, as opposed to a granddaughter, I've got to say this, um, it took a lot of courage to stand back um, and to take the political hit, which by the way, only developed a little bit later. Again, I believe it was tied to politics. And he is heard to be saying at one point, I just, Americans are so fearful. And we still have this problem today, we're so fearful. Um, I would love to see a national discussion about why we're so fearful when actually of all the countries in the world, we enjoy um, longevity and extraordinary safety in a way that so many other countries don't. Susan, uh, Walt, if I, can, if I can jump in here, I wanna, I wanna rewind even a couple of years before Sputnik, um, but pick up on your last point about fear and, and think about it in the way that I gather from your book and, and from a lot of other reading uh, on Eisenhower I've done that he, as perhaps a military man, had this unique relationship with fear that the kind of political chattering classes and the media didn't have, which is he could he could harness it, right? He was rational about fear, uh, mm -hmm. he knew how to describe it in rational ways. And you know, to me, the episode of, of Stalin's death not only provoking solarium for need of a, you know, strategic plan, but also provoking the chance for peace speech. Uh, and in general, the sort of theme of rational fear of war because of what it would lead to, that you see just woven throughout everything he says and does, this sort of clear-eyed awareness that this wasn't a winnable war. This was a war we could not get into. And thus, talking about you know, his strategic purpose, right? While the, the focus on strategy, the strategy was peace. It was actually war avoidance. You know, there were a number of sub-goals to that. But so I guess the question is: number one, 
how did he think about peace and how did he think about um, kind of, you know, balancing between a rational fear of nuclear war with the Soviets and not either looking weak or actually getting rolled by the Soviets or inviting Soviet aggression. In a sense, I'm also asking, where did he come out on the whole solarium exercise? Well, he came out in, in, in two places. The other uh, element that we haven't talked about is he didn't believe in small wars. He didn't think that small wars would necessarily stay small. Now, uh, we have a different environment today where we really don't have any competitors who are you know, willing to uh, commit uh, blood and treasure um, you know, to some, um, you know, along the, um, you know, the scale that they might have in the 1950s. I'm sure that's a debatable point, but let's just go back to the issue that he didn't like small wars. Uh, you know, he promised in 1952 campaign to go to Korea. Uh, and he went to Korea. He um, actually flew over the front, uh, looked at the terrain. This is an experienced military man, um, came back and uh, just said to himself, actually, he had the good graces to um, call his old mentor, but now competitor, Douglas MacArthur. Uh, and they discussed it, but they, uh, you know, um, Eisenhower decided, and he was used to making big decisions, that that was not a winnable war. Uh, you do what you have to do to make it winnable, um, and then you are into uh, a territory that is so dangerous as to, you know, be uh, not even, um, uh, you know, not even an option. Then the other thing, and it's back to Walt's earlier point about the state of the economy. See, these, these small wars in his view, uh, you, uh, if they weren't winnable, then it, they would bleed you dry, uh, both financially and, uh, no, I should say both from a human perspective and also financially. Um, and so he sets up a system that was certainly controversial for its time, but it, it became the thing that got us through the Cold War, which is this uh, deterrence uh, capability and the concept of that. Now, of course, later uh, you get a combination of both small wars and a deterrence policy, um, which uh, uh, you know is worthy of another discussion, but at least for the purposes of this, uh, it's extraordinary, uh, I would add, if you uh, would allow me one more minute here, how um, he actually goes after his own colleagues. Uh, when I say after his own colleagues, I mean that would be in the Army, Navy, uh, Air Force, uh, and others who had been his comrades in arms during the war. And he tells them, no, they're not going to get their pet projects. And he, you know, was sitting at the Oval Office with a red pen striking out certain programs that he thought weren't necessary. So the military actually, um, you know, uh, there was uh, the uh, Defense Reform Act of 1957. You have many occasions where he is trying to rein in this force, give it its potency, uh, but not to dissipate its, its power. Um, it strikes me, one, one of the amazing things about this man who, you know, one version of him, and you address this point squarely in the book, is, you know, he kind of uh, rises up through the system by, you know, knowing when to subordinate his ego and serve and keep quiet and, you know, wear the uniform and all this stuff. But on the other hand, I mean, he, he really is a maverick and he doesn't have a problem with bucking conventional wisdom or groupthink. And, and there's this great line in the book about, you know, uh, sort of his disdain for followers who masquerade as leaders. Uh, and you really see that come through 
you know, in the battle with McCarthyism and, and the whole McCarthy era and this extreme wing of his own party, where it's an attempt at basically kind of political or intellectual bullying, and he just will have none of it, even though it seems like, you know, the majority of people who self-identify as being on his team want him to. I, I find that fascinating. And, and that's the moral courage, but it's also the sort of um, because he's doing it in the name of something that's moderate at the end of the day, that's sort of decent and, 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 and middle way, right, rather than doing it in the name of an extreme kind of position that he's staked out. Well, you know, um, the, the point is well taken that, um, you know, he probably looked at the political landscape like a battlefield and he's saying to himself, what do I control? Uh, in civil rights, he didn't control state governments. Uh, in, in the Joseph McCarthy era, he did not control um, the uh, censure process uh, over a sitting senator. He did not control the Senate. So he looks at that and he has to find um, another way to address it. Um, I think one of the, uh, the other really interesting areas, and I think um, uh, not every, unless you were reading all the other scholarship very carefully, and I got this from his journal, um, but during the Bolin, the Chip Bolin uh, nomination, uh, he is infuriated uh, that he's having a hard time bringing his own party along with respect to supporting his uh, nominee for um, ambassador to the Soviet Union. And he's so angry at one point, he writes down that he is giving consideration to starting a third party. Now, you know, wow, that's, that's really quite something. Now, how, how could he even uh, afford to think about that? Because his popularity was so high. And, and this is after, you know, being a, a general and having um, so millions of people under his command in Europe. And, and he understood that that was one of the assets he had. And it would have been very interesting uh, to do a what if on history if Dwight Eisenhower had started a moderate wing of the Republican Party and left behind um, the, the people he regarded as um, uh, on the extreme uh, side in that party. In any case, um, you know, the first term was uh, spent uh, trying to reshape the party, which he largely accomplished after McCarthy left. And the second half of his administration was about trying to calm people down. Um, and um, uh, you know, there were going to be consequences no matter what happened, but certainly where he fit into it was not one of the things he worried about. Um, I want to bring in some of our excellent questions from the audience and remind folks that uh, if you have more questions, you can email them to Kenan at WilsonCenter.org uh, or, or tweet or, or Facebook them. Um, there's one here from uh, Joshua Rubenstein, who's an associate at the Davis Center for Russian and Eurasian Studies at Harvard. Um, and he asks, do you think that President Eisenhower could have been more open to negotiation, even a summit meeting, summit meeting with Stalin's heirs in the spring of 1953? Boy, what a sensitive moment that would have been for a summit meeting. That would have been a big summit meeting. Well, I'd say, um, well, first of all, uh, of course, uh, Solarium is in uh, July of 53, so that wouldn't leave too much time. Um, and there were discussions actually after Stalin's death, whether there ought to be a meeting right away, whether, you know, what kind of approach should be taken. Um, but I think um, Eisenhower felt that um, uh, probably um, uh, planning and, and um, you know, creating uh, the thinking about how to uh, approach this part of the world uh, would be important. Also, um, you know, we didn't really know who was running the Soviet Union at that time. Uh, it seemed like there were all kinds of, um, you know, 
aspirants to the big role, but uh, a lot of infighting. And I think it would have been hard probably to, um, you know, make any progress. It's, it's not until, of course, the Geneva summit when it's clear that there are a couple of people who are contenders. And I think at the end of the Geneva summit, they concluded that Khrushchev uh, was going to be the person they had to deal with. But that whole period of uncertainty uh, did require not you know, shaking things up so much um, that we ended up actually being bit players in a uh, internal battle inside the Soviet Union. That would be my guess. But um, again, I, I don't have his uh, direct words for that. Actually, wondering in, in follow up to that question, um, how would you assess? You know, there, there clearly was a diplomatic role that he played as Supreme Allied Commander, actually, you know, in the NATO interlude as well, but certainly during the war. Um, and I presume that he was at the at least some of the summits, uh, the big three summits, or he was, he was, you know, abreast of what was going on and involved in the conversations. How, how do you see continuity or not between the way he did diplomacy with the Soviets in that context versus how he did it later in his presidency? Because obviously, you know, radically different eras in terms of U.S.-Soviet cooperation. Well, I think some of it, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to say because there, there is continuity and yet there isn't continuity. I mean, if you look at, uh, um, you know, the, um, the, the great effort we made um, in arming ourselves um, in a confrontation against the Soviet Union during the Truman years is different than the way Eisenhower looks at it. But I think the thing I want to underscore um, is um, something that I mentioned in the book, which I found wonderful and I enjoyed being able to convey it, that after the war, um, Eisenhower writes a superintendent at West Point and requests, he's chief of staff of the army, and requests that they establish a psychology department at West Point. Uh, now, I think that's, that's wonderful and it's very, uh, I say it's wonderful because it's, it's, it's all like, frankly. I mean, but he, he really believed in the human side of um, uh, diplomacy and the human side of the choices people make. He saw it time and time again in warfare. Um, as a matter of fact, he once wrote to his mother-in-law saying that human beings are more emotional and sentimental than they are uh, logical or um, intellectual. And what he means by that is people react in passionate ways that can get very, uh, can be very positive and it can also be very dangerous. So you see a kind of personal diplomacy, especially with the Soviet leadership. Um, thinking um, specifically, not only of the Geneva summit, but uh, think of the 1959, visit of Khrushchev, 10 whole days in the United States of America. It's kind of amazing. Uh, and this is in the middle of the Berlin ultimatum. Um, and then um, realizing they spent uh, at the summit meeting at Camp David in 1959 during that visit, uh, they were not able to resolve um, you know, the Berlin question, uh, even, after, even though they spent all morning talking about the war. So Ike knew he wanted to get Khrushchev on the subjects that appealed to Khrushchev. So they spent all morning talking about, you know, our common victory, you know, um, and then uh, failed to reach an agreement and, and brought Khrushchev uh, down to the family farm. And I played my little bit role uh, in turning up and by the way, being extremely well behaved. Um, so much so that of course uh, the cold war, you know, uh, did not go hot after this uh, meeting. No, but the whole idea that um, you could actually get closer to somebody by uh, 
um, showing the commonality of having grandchildren or having a family that you loved. And this is why we're doing it. And I, I, that was what I was kind of hoping to um, reveal in this book is this human side of him that he was not ashamed or felt weak to display. Um, and today we're so busy trying to look tough all the time. Um, and I, I certainly understand that. We wanna look strong. We don't, you know, we don't wanna look like we're inhuman. And, um, and I think he shows the way uh, on that. And um, um, I, I hope that answered a question. I think I rambled off on that one, but uh, just well, wanted to add that anyway. <laughs> yeah, Susan, if I could, this is Walt again, if I could jump in. I mean, he's, his, his um, sort of valedictory uh, uh, talk to the nation um, where he mentions the very famously the so-called military industrial complex and but he also talks about the need of ba for balance i mean that's often uh, do you think when he left was he optimistic or pessimistic about america what, what, what's your take on uh uh ike when he leaves office in in, in 61 uh what do you think he what, what, where do well, you think, I think he thinks the country's going Oh, I, I don't think he ever lost his faith in the American people. Absolutely not. There's some wonderful exchanges, correspondence with his older brother, who was um, very conservative and a little bossy. And uh, the president of the United States didn't like it very much at times. And I couldn't help myself. I had to put it in the book because it reminds everybody of their Thanksgiving dinners, right? <laughs> when the whole family gets together, nobody can agree about anything. Uh, no, but... Um, you know, uh, and he says to his brother, uh, Edgar, at one point, uh, I have um, my faith in the American people I regard as one of my strengths. Um, and I think all of us have faith in the American people today. But um, it's because of that faith that we have to expect more. Uh, we have to expect our elected leaders to act in dignified ways and to tr treat other people with differing viewpoints with respect. And that was so fundamental to um, the way Ike um, uh, approached uh, his uh, wartime years, his presidency. And so in retirement, I think he's looking back and feeling a little sad uh, that not only mm, had he not brought this so-called lasting peace with the Soviet Union, but he obviously didn't find a lasting peace with um, you know, his political adversaries either, um, because he always thought it was about so much more um, than just politics. Uh, now, you can say that's naive, but if you aren't driven by some kind of idealism, then I'm not sure why, you know, it's, it's worth um, all of the energy. Um, he just had a different idea that the middle way, which he tried to build, and he called his eight years of the presidency the middle way. He was just determined um, that that would be um, a meeting ground for all um, people of uh, goodwill and good faith to come together to um, find ways to compromise and to, um, you know, ensure progress rather than stalemate. So a question from uh, Mike Mosetic sort of follows up uh, very directly on this uh, notion of his antipathy for those who kind of practice politics too much. Truman, of course, uh, had his origins in, in a really classic political machine, although it's maybe not <laughs> characterize his presidency that way. Um, so Mike asks, uh, knowing that uh, both Ike and Truman liked history um, and that they famously didn't get along for a number of years, but then reconciled at the Kennedy funeral in 1963, 
Um, did they have any kind of relationship after that? Did they talk about their mutual fascination with history? Did, did they talk to each other? Well, first of all, they were friends. And I think few people realize that Harry Truman and Ike's older brother actually um, were at a, in a boarding house together in Kansas City. I mean, so these are two guys who come from uh, the heartland of America about uh, an hour and a half by car. It's, it's really rather remarkable. And they had way more uh, in common about uh, um, their vision for certain things than I think um, many people are willing to recognize. It's just that, you know, they were, um, they'd, they'd all seen a lot. Truman, uh, on two occasions in 48 and 52, offered to step down so that Dwight Eisenhower could become president um, and uh, was fully expecting Eisenhower to be a Democrat. So it, the, the problems start when Ike decides to uh, try and uh, uh, run for um, president as a Republican for the reasons I explained earlier. Um, so I, I don't really um, know how um, it ended, except that it always made, um, I think, my grandfather very quiet. Um, I saw him a lot in his retirement years. Uh, there were moments when you could tell he was very pensive and thinking about things, but he never lost faith. I remember on one occasion, um, uh, uh, Mark Hadfield uh, was running for the Senate of the United States. He was on Meet the Press. And my grandfather was so excited about seeing what was coming out of Mark Hatfield's mouth and what a centrist he was and what he wanted for this country that literally right after that, I gets up and picks up the phone, calls CBS News and says, I'd like to talk to Governor Hatfield. Um, and, you know, he was always trying to bring people along. But, um, you know, just in conclusion, uh, it's not that he was naive about politics. There wasn't anything more political, frankly, than World War II, uh, both strategically and from a personality standpoint. It's just that when it gets too excessive, um, it does not make it easy to move this country forward, uh, especially in times of urgency. Susan, a quick, a quick question uh, from Mike Abel's uh, rewinding way back uh, pre-presidency. Um, other than uh, experimenting with the emergence of armor, what strategic lessons did Eisenhower learn from Pershing uh, that shaped his, his thinking in World War II? Do you have any thoughts? Well, well I would, I would um, uh, think that's a fascinating area of, um, of, of research. Uh, Pershing does uh, assign Eisenhower to write um, a book loosely called uh, The American Battlefields of France. Um, and so Ike walks that whole terrain um, in France. By the way, um, uh, a helpful piece of experience when World War II runs around. He, he knew where every crossroad was uh, in some of the places America fought during the first war. Um, and so uh, he learned that, but I, I, uh, and that was for Pershing. But the person he had a really close relationship was with uh, General Fox Connor, who um, had served as uh, uh, commander of operations uh, during the First World War for General Pershing. And so this was a very tight group um, and he understood a lot. And um, I, I know Walt, you've pointed out many times uh, how important uh, Connor was, including the fact that he, he made Eisenhower read Clausewitz, what, three times, is that right? Um, wow, uh, so he was a mentor to Ike. And I think that this, this line um, this connection between the First and the Second World War is kind of solidified in that relationship between Connor and Eisenhower. Okay, I'm gonna uh, 
you know, take the, the host's prerogative here. And in our very last five minutes, Susan, I'm going to ask you an unfair, but I think deeply important question. And that is, you know, here we are at the outset of a new presidency. Uh, we have, I think, strategic challenges, China, of course, uh, but, you know, Moscow still, and again, one might say, uh, of, of a really epic level. And I, I think the risks um, uh, of of the kind of cataclysm that Ike was afraid of are, are non-zero. Uh, they're certainly not trivial. You know, if you can project, uh, what would be the advice that a, you know, president, general, uh, spirit of Dwight Eisenhower would give to the president of the United States today and how to handle those challenges? Well, um, he was, um, you know, it, it's hard to, um, I, I can give you the general outlines of what I think he would be uh, pushing for, but of course, nobody could do it better than, um, uh, than Dwight Eisenhower himself. But I'll tell you this, uh, he had an expression, I heard him use it um, myself, my father used it all the time. The, the one thing they were really fearful of at the White House in the 1950s was the net result of what they called, quote unquote, paranoid uncertainty. Isn't that a great expression? Paranoid uncertainty. You can just imagine how easy it would be for all of us to fall into paranoid uncertainty. And then the mistakes, then the mistakes come. And the mistakes could be really big mistakes. Um, ones that um, threaten our national security um, in ways that we can't even imagine. And so this is going to take a revival of diplomacy. It really is. And um, this may sound old fashioned to recommend it, but we've got to train rising generations about what diplomacy really means. We have to uh, begin to uh, give them a better sense of uh, the complexities, not just about the foreign policy landscape, but also about human interaction. Um, because Ike really did believe that, um, um, you know, human problems, as he called them, um, you know, were, were real. And uh, so this is to take nothing away um, from, um, you know, the, the efforts to assure that America looks strong on the international stage. Uh, but we have to find ways to um, build, uh, as I say, uh, either relationships to bring about that relationship management that I mentioned earlier, uh, or we could live with some really unintended consequences. So I think what I could be telling us today is to get started, get started and don't be so fearful because um, actually standing by and being fearful may be as uh, big a risk to our future as, um, as anything else. That's wonderful advice. And uh, you know, through you, uh, Ike is able to offer it today. Let me just uh, once again, plug the book, How Ike Led, <laughs> The principles behind Eisenhower's biggest decisions. The author is, of course, the incomparable Susan Eisenhower. Uh, I want to thank you, Susan, especially yep. Walt, for for guiding us through such a an in depth conversation. And let me just say personally, this is an incredibly readable book. This this book is worth reading. So many books are trophy books that you put on your shelf or your coffee table. This is that. But it is it is a really good read. Susan is a great writer, uh, and the lessons in, in this are so deep and so real and so relevant. So thank you again, both. Thank you to our audience. Thanks to the team for producing today's event. Um, everyone, have a, have a great afternoon. Bye-bye.